Okay, so just before I start, let me just open in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to dive into your word, Lord God. I invite your Holy Spirit into this place. I thank you that you're so faithful when we go through your word. You're so faithful to reveal yourself as you've been revealing yourself over the last few um, weeks or months, Lord God, through the messages that we've received. We thank you so much for the, the revelation that you give us. And I pray that you'll give us more revelation today in Jesus' name. Amen. So greetings church um, on this wonderful day. I pray that the grace, mercy and peace of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son is on us all and I hope that you're all well and yeah, especially in the time that we're in that I hope that you're all in good health. See how I make a habit of that, uh, of that thing. You'll see in the message that uh, it's, it's relevant. It's very relevant. Let me just put this here. Okay. So today we're going to do some good old-fashioned Bible reading. <laughs> I hope that this isn't a foreign concept to any of you. <laughs> and if it is, I trust that this will be a great opportunity to illuminate God's Word for you and also just to get you hungry for more of diving into His Word. Um, nowadays we don't often take a book uh, of the Bible and just read it from start to finish. Now, there's nothing wrong with the other types of preaching such as taking a particular topic and tracing it through scripture there's nothing wrong with that but there's just something special about actually reading God's word and then starting from from page one to page well in this case page one to page one <laughs> um, yeah so hopefully this will be a good opportunity to allow the word to just wash over us so today we're going to study the book of Jude now Jude is a book that's probably not very well known for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it's situated right at the end of your Bible, just before Revelation, as you can see here. And secondly, like I was alluding to, it's just one page or one chapter. In my book, it's, uh, in my Bible, it's a couple of pages because it's uh, the NET Bible, so 90% of the page is translation notes and stuff like that. So, yeah. Whoops. Sorry about that. Just remind me not to touch that. <laughs> okay, so hopefully you guys have got your Bibles here. Um, one thing that we notice in the church nowadays is that people don't bring physical Bibles anymore. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. But uh, I just feel like for me personally, I love having a physical Bible. But if you don't, it's a good opportunity to take your or whatever you're going to use, but to go through the word with me. Um, I'm trusting that Justin can also put the scriptures up for us so that we can go through it together. So it's, it's really powerful to actually read the word because if I had to just dictate it to you, you might be like, okay, well, trust whatever Sean says, but I can change it. <laughs> okay, verse 1. We're literally going to study this book together today. From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, uh, and I'm reading from the NET version, but um, yeah, it doesn't really matter which version you're reading from, you'll still get the gist of it. So from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude or Judah or Judas, depending on the particular language that you're reading it in, was obviously a brother of Jesus and a brother of James. Now James is the same guy that wrote the epistle of James a couple of books earlier. 
and we see that Jude is a brother of Jesus Christ but yet in this verse he doesn't say a brother of Jesus Christ he is a slave of Jesus Christ now why is that? so if we look at scripture very closely we see that actually Jesus' siblings were not believers or didn't believe in him until after his death this is something that we see in Mark 6 verse 1 to 6 where Jesus went to his hometown and he started preaching in the synagogue and when he did the people there were like oh wow isn't this Joseph's son Joseph the carpenter's son like don't we know him aren't these his brothers James, Judas etc um, here with us and so they took offense at him and that's when Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house essentially alluding to the fact that his own family didn't believe in him but luckily after his death we see that well, after his death and resurrection we see that they actually did believe in him because in Acts 1.14 all these continued together in prayers talking about the saints with one mind together with the woman along with Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers so we see that after his death they did actually become believers so we can conclude well it's, it's just a conjecture but we can assume that maybe he was actually ashamed of the fact that he only became a believer of uh, Christ after his death and that's why he said a slave of Jesus Christ but the more important point is that someone who was Jesus's brother technically considered himself a slave of Jesus Christ so how much more should we have reverence for Christ okay verse 1 still <laughs> To those who are called, wrapped in the love of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now I love the way that Jude addresses the recipient. So we see who the book is from, we see who it's to now. To those who are called. Everyone here is called today because we're all believers in Christ Jesus. We've all received the revelation of the gospel. And as a consequence it means we're called. So in a sense we're also receiving this message. And then wrapped in the love of God the Father. Now... I can't think of a better, safer, more secure, more wonderful place to be than being wrapped in the love of God. Can you think about that? Being wrapped in the love of God the Father. That is incredible. Like what a, in the world that we live in, what safer place can there be to be wrapped in the love of God? And that's where we are today. You just have to acknowledge it. <laughs> and kept for Jesus Christ. Now there's a play on words here. It could be kept for Jesus Christ and it could be kept by Jesus Christ. But ironically both apply because we kept by Jesus Christ in the sense that he is the one that allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies. He is the one that has made the, paved the way for us. But then we're also kept for Jesus Christ because we're essentially his bride. We're going to be his bride one day as the church. Verse 2, may mercy, peace and love be lavished on you. There you go, there's the greeting I keep giving. So I love how the, the writers of these epistles always bless the church, always bless the recipients with these, these wonderful blessings. And for us, you know, we greet each other, we say hello, how are you, etc. But how much more powerful is it to actually say, mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you? Like imagine every time you see a fellow believer, you, you greet them like that. It's so powerful because they receive that. Who doesn't want mercy, peace and love to be lavished on them in these difficult times that we're in? So make a point of it. I've been making a point of it, but yeah. It's just so much more valuable. Okay, verse 3. So we've seen who the book is from, we've seen who the book is to, and we've received a blessing. And now, in verse 3, we see what the theme of the book is. Dear friends, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation... 
I now feel compelled instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So now we see what Judas is actually writing this story about, or this, this book about. He says that he's been eager to write to them about our com- common salvation. So in other words, he probably wanted to write a letter about doctrinal sort of issues, you know, just talking about the, what salvation is. But instead, he felt this urging to challenge and encourage the saints to defend the faith. And what we find in this, that's essentially what this is about. It's about defending the faith. So if you had to summarize the book of Jude, it's about defending the faith against false teaching, or twisting of the word, and then also expressing God's judgment on, upon people who do this. And it's a warning to us that don't, don't mess with God's word because <laughs> you'll see there's a, lot of, there's a lot of condemnation and judgment that comes upon people that do this. So when we talk about the faith, when he says to contend earnestly for the faith, what is the faith? The faith is essentially the truth, if you had to make it as simple as possible. The faith is the truth that has been revealed in God's word. It's the truth of everything. It's the truth of this world. It's the truth of um, what Jesus has done for us, what God has created, what his story for our lives. That's what the faith is. And here he says that we must contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, the word that he uses is uh, epigonismi, which is a word which means to fight, to struggle, to contend for something. So now this is really applicable to where we are today because we need to struggle and fight for the faith. What we're seeing happening in the world in front of us is a complete twisting of the word. Verse 4, For certain men have secretly slipped in among you, Men who long ago were marked out for the condemnation I'm about to describe. So now we see, and uh, let me just finish, ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So now we see what is it that we must defend the, the faith against. It's about false teachers. So we see that there were these men who secretly slipped in among them, men who long ago were marked for condemnation I'm about to describe. So. Clearly this is what is happening at this particular time. There are these people who have made it into the church and who are taking the word of God and twisting it in people's minds. Very reminiscent of, of, of the world we live in today. Now if you look in your Bible, you might have a heading here that says condemnation of the false teachers or something like that. And whenever we talk about false teachers, people always default to, okay, you're talking about the leader of the church, the pastor in the church, and we always say, okay, oh, you know, just be wary of false um, pastors. But if you look at the actual text, because remember these headings and stuff are not actually part of the Bible if you think about it. It's just the text itself. And it talks about men secretly slipping into the church and misleading people. I don't know about you, but pastors don't generally secretly slip into, <laughs> into a church. It's normally a little bit more obvious than that. But anyway, the point here is just that we must be wary of the fact that it could also be referring to just normal brothers and sisters like you and me who take the word of God and when we're talking to other people we say no that's not what it means this is what it means and, or we turn the like it says turn the grace of God into a license for evil in other words saying you know um, that's not, you know we've been saved by grace we can do this this is okay and that's such a dangerous thing and we see that's exactly what these people were doing there were two things they were doing they turned the grace of God into a license for evil and they deny Jesus. And in the world we live in today, tell me that this is not what's happening right now. The, the whole church 
uh, not the whole church, sorry, a portion of the church has made it a thing to say, okay, well, we live under grace. So in other words, all this law and all these commandments and stuff, you know, that was for that time. It's not applicable now. You know, like where it says a particular thing, especially around like sexual sin. Nowadays, that's, that's outdated, if you know. It's not in our modern world. Why, why should we still apply that kind of stuff? And that's exactly, I know it says here in my Bible, a license for evil, but it also says in other Bibles, a, um, a license for sensu- or licentiousness. In other words, like sexual sin, you know? So that's the world we're living in today. And also people denying our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the world that we live as well, we have people who will say, yes, Jesus, oh, I believe God exists, you know, there is a God. But Jesus, I can't accept Jesus as, like Jesus was just a guy, you know, he was just another person. But to say that Jesus is Christ, uh, or is Lord, no, I can't do that. And the reason why they can't do that is because if you admit that Jesus is Lord, if you admit that he died and was resurrected, you know that he is God. And that everything that he said and everything that's in this word is now automatically applicable to you. So people don't want to admit that. Okay, verse 5. Now you, you're going to see how much structure there is in this book. Just the way that it's laid out. Like We serve a God of order. That Even in his word there's so much order. So in the next couple of verses we have this, these examples of where God actually judged sin. So examples of where people have sinned previously in the, in the Bible and God judged them for it. So verse 5, Now I desire to remind you, even though you have been fully informed about these facts once for all, that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. This is our first example. Now, the, f- the, the challenge here, well, firstly, let's just talk about the fact that he says, even though you have been fully informed of these facts, and this is the first challenge to you guys, in these days, when Jude wrote this, and he said, okay, I'm going to tell you these examples, he didn't, he didn't explain it to the people. He assumed that, hey, you guys know this stuff. You know these facts. He uses the word facts once for all. You've been fully informed of this. You know the full extent of this. When we read our Bibles, do we know the full extent of these examples as we go through them? These guys didn't even have a Bible like we've got it. You know, we've got it on our phones, we've got it in a book, etc. These guys had nothing. And yet they knew these stories offhand. He, he just mentions it because he knows that they know it. He says, you've, you've known these facts, fully informed of them. So the challenge here, and as I go through this book, is ask yourself, how well do you know these examples that I'm quoting or that Jude is, is giving? It's a real challenge to how well do you know your word, that if someone just mentions something from the word, do you know the context there? Now, an interesting thing is that I said, and hopefully it's there as well, yeah. Now, I desire to remind you that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, you might read that and be like, what? What do you mean Jesus saved the Israelite? Oh, Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. And this is such an interesting little um, translation note, and I urge you to go research this. I did a bit of research on this, and it's really cool. So, if you go and look at the manuscript evidence, or even if you look at your Bible, whatever translation you're reading it in, it might not say Jesus, it might say God or Lord. And if you look at the manuscript evidence, there's evidence for Jesus, there's evidence for God, and there's evidence for Lord. But if you look at the earliest manuscript evidence, and if you look at what they call the patristic quotes, the the early church fathers, they quoted Jesus when they quoted this verse. 
which is really interesting because if it is Jesus, if the word, if the, the mention is of Jesus, then it essentially pro- proclaims something called high Christology, which is the idea that Jesus has existed before all time. Jesus has always existed, and he acted even in the Old Testament in taking the people out of the land of Egypt. And again, that's testifying to God being, uh, to Jesus being God, his, divin- his divinity. And it's not, for us as Christians, that shouldn't actually be surprising anyway, right? I mean, <laughs> we know Jesus has existed for all time. He's always been there. But to think that he acted in the Old Testament and bring the Israelites out of Egypt, that's not something that we often think about. And yet, if you read, well, even Jesus himself says, um, before, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is he meaning by that? That he's always been, that he's always existed. And in the Gospel of John, I love the way the Gospel of John starts. It's so special when talking about Jesus. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. What, is the, what does that mean? <laughs> and why does it echo Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why the similarity between those two? In other words, attesting to the fact that Jesus was always there. Anyway, that's quite fascinating. That's a little bit of a detour. But so our first example um, is of Jesus, we can say Jesus, or God, leading the people out of the land of Egypt. So he led the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but then subsequently destroyed them. And why was that? Because as they were led out of the land of bondage, and they went into the desert, and God showed them the promised land, the land of milk and honey, they saw it, and they saw these giant dudes that were in that place, And they said, no thanks, (laughs) let's go back to Egypt, our true land of milk and honey. And as a consequence of their their lack of faith in God, their lack of belief in God, he ended up destroying them um, as they wandered around the desert. And most of that generation didn't actually make it into the promised land. So the sin, or the first example, is that of not trusting the Lord, not having belief in the Lord. Then we have the second example in verse 6. You also know that the angels who did not keep their proper domain but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains in utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. Now this is interesting. So how how well do you know your Bible again? What is he talking about here? If we go back to Genesis 6, we see that the sons of God, i.e. the angels, came down to earth and had sex with human women and brought about these beings known as the Nephilim. And then we see that they, as a consequence of that, they got um, bound in chains and they're waiting everlasting judgment. And we see this in Revelation as well, actually, and in something called the Book of Enoch, which I'll mention in in a few minutes. But now, what was the sin here? So the sin was God has placed bounds around us, or around every one of his created beings, and said, these, you must not step outside of these bounds. And here we see the angels did that. They stepped outside of the boundaries that God placed for them. And as a consequence, they brought judgment upon themselves. And not to mention the sexual immorality or sexual sin that, that was on top of all of this. So that's the second example. Stepping outside of the bounds that God has given us. And then the third example, verse 7, So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. So the third example is again of, well, it's sexual immorality. And people love, we all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but people love to take this, this 
story and change it into something that it isn't and say, no, you know, it wasn't about sexual sin, it was about gang rape or it was about forcing people on other people. And people just will do anything they can to twist the scriptures. And it's, it's quite sad, actually, when clearly here this was about sexual immorality. And it, I mean, it's as plain as day. It says here they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. In other words, taking what God has designed and turning it into something abominable. And you know, it's funny. Oh, it's not funny. It's interesting how it says Sodom and Gomorrah are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. And you know, they say that, this is obviously not proven historical fact, but they say that after God destroyed these cities with fire and brimstone from heaven, and you should see that um, archaeologists are digging this up now and still seeing this kind of stuff, it's amazing that they found this place that's all burnt up. But the fact that he says are now displayed as an example, now there's, a, there's this thing that obviously it's not proven, but that in Jesus' time and in Jude's time and when they wrote this, those cities were still smoldering. In other words, if you went to where Sodom and Gomorrah was, you could actually go there and you could see, okay, this is what happens to people who pursue this kind of sin. This is what God does to um, cities that do this. So when he says they, they displayed as an example, I think he means it literally. Okay, verse 8. Yet these men, as a result of their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and insult the glorious ones. But even when Michael the archangel was arguing with the devil and debating with him, considering Moses' body, he did not dare to bring a slanderous judgment against him, but said, May the Lord rebuke you. Now, I should... Oh, I did this again. I should have mentioned that... Um, or I should mention that if you read the book of 2 Peter and you contrast it with, um, with Jude... Oh, sorry you'll see that the two books are, are pretty much the same, or 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude. If you read those two books, you'll see that they are very, very similar in the sense that you could almost call the one a plagiarism of the other one. You would think that the two authors are writing the exact same thing. It's actually kind of funny. But if you, if you look at the detail, you'll see that Peter is actually prophesying something that's going to happen, and Jude is talking about that the fulfillment of that thing is in it's happening right now. And if we read in the Peter side of things, we can also see that when we talk about these men um, insulting the glorious ones and rejecting authority, what it actually means is that they, when we talk about glorious ones, I know this is going to sound weird, but we're actually talking about demons. So when they say that they insult the glorious ones, and they reject authority, it means that they, these men reject spiritual authorities. They insult demonic entities. And you might think, okay, well, that's weird. Like, what's wrong with insulting demons? What's wrong with insulting, you know, the authority? Like, like let's say, in the context of South Africa, we've got spiritual authorities over this country. Um, hopefully, you guys know that. <laughs> so there's God's authority, but then there's also other... Um, spiritual authorities that are over us and those are not necessarily angelic um, authorities so when they reject authority and when we reject authority we're also at risk of doing these same things that these people are doing over here so even the example um, after that of when angel uh, Michael the archangel was arguing with the devil and debating with him about Moses' body now, I don't know how well you know your Bible but 
regardless of how well you know it, you're not going to find that in the Bible anyway. <laughs> There's no um, story of how Michael was arguing with Moses. So when we get to this kind of thing, you know, this is what I meant earlier about, or I should have mentioned earlier, that the book of Jude has a lot of references to stuff that's outside of Scripture that you won't find uh, mentioned somewhere else in Scripture. But just because a story is quoted in some, um, let's call it extra-biblical or apocryphal sort of work, that doesn't mean that that book necessarily is um, canonical. But the fact that the quote or the story is here in Scripture by default means that it's true because we as Christians believe that everything in this book is the God-inspired, it's the God-breathed, God-inspired book of, of his word. So in other words, if it's in here, it's true, right? Which means that this story is true, um, regardless of whether it's quoted from some apocryphal work or whatever. Anyway, the lesson here is that if Michael, and this is actually a nice little side lesson, is that if the head of the archangels, or the head of the angels, Michael is supposedly the, the angel of angels, you know, the king of the angels, whatever you want to call it, like the, the head of the angels, if he didn't have the, I don't want to say guts, but didn't want to say to the devil, I'm going to condemn you, he actually called God to condemn the devil, how much more should we? Like this is a lesson in how we should deal with spiritual entities. We aren't supposed to um, cast, or let's say, um, insult or you know condemn devils ourselves. We're actually supposed to call Jesus to do this or God to do this. That's why he says, "May the Lord rebuke you." Okay, verse ten. But these men, and you see, there's just so much to learn from this book. It's just incredible how much you can unpack from a one-page book of the Bible. Verse ten. But these men do not understand the things that they slander. And they are being destroyed by the very things that, like irrational animals, they instinctively comprehend. Now, what on, what on earth does that mean? So, again, if we go back to the angels thing, oh, sorry, the demons thing, remember angels and demons, demons are essentially fallen angels, so. <laughs> These men do not understand the things they slander. That goes back to the thing of insulting the glorious ones. And they are being destroyed by the things that they do understand. So, what are they being destroyed by? They're being destroyed by sin. We all know sin. We don't need to have a special revelation to know that, hey, this is wrong. Um, this type of sin is wrong. Sensuality is wrong. Licentiousness is wrong. And that's what's destroying these men. The things that they do understand destroy them, but the things that they don't understand, they make fun of. Woe to them, for they have traveled down Cain's path, and because of greed have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Hence, they will certainly perish in Korah's rebellion. So again, we've got three examples, or three analogies of what these men are like. And again, you're going to be challenged now about how well do you know your Bible? Do you know what Cain's path is? Do you know what Balaam's error is? Do you know what Korah's rebellion is? If you don't, luckily I'm going to explain it for you. <laughs> but, if, but if you don't, it's a challenge to you that, hey, check your, read your Bible, read your Bible. Get these things into you so that you know them. Okay, so let's look at this. Cain's, they've traveled down Cain's path. This one we should all hopefully know. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. The very first sons that we see in the Bible. Now Cain was a produce farmer. He farmed like crops. Um, and Abel was a livestock farmer. He farmed cattle, etc. And at some point in time, the two of them both brought offerings to God. 
So it says Abel, uh, Cain brought some of his crops. It doesn't really, you know, it just says he brought some of his crops. But then for Abel, it says that he brought the firstborn of his livestock and the fat portions to go along with it. And then immediately after that, we see that God had regard for Abel's offering, but he had no regard for Cain's offering. And so Cain gets upset and his face is downcast and God says to him, why, you, why is your face downcast? Don't you know that if you do well, it will go well with you? But if you don't do well, sin is crouching at your doorstep. And literally, immediately subsequent to that, as if he didn't even hear God, he went and killed his brother. Now, what is the moral of the story? Why, why did God have regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's? And you can draw your own conclusion from um, Genesis itself in terms of how God actually addressed it by saying, you know, um, if you do well, it will go well with you. In other words, speaking to the condition of their heart, speaking to their level of faith. But if, if you really want clarity on this, and I can tell you it's about the state of the heart and it's about the level of faith. And the reason why I can say that is because if you read in Hebrews 11, which is the book about uh, what they call the hall of faith, all the people who are examples of faith, you'll see that by faith, Abel was able to please God with his offering. So in other words, it comes down to how much faith did they have when they actually brought the offering to God. Um, Cain bringing his offering as in, in a half-hearted, empty sort of way, and Abel bringing his offering with joy and with faith in the Lord. So that's why Cain's offering wasn't accepted. But now this image, or this example, gives us an example of people in the church. We've got people who have an empty sort of religion. They come to church just to you know, go through the motions, just to do the religious act, which is kind of what Cain did over here. And it's so dangerous for us to go down this path because what happens then is if you are one of those type of people, when you see people who fully believe in God or have faith in God, you're jealous of them. And you say, oh, I, I, I can't understand how you are getting fulfillment out of God and I'm not. So empty religion very dangerous, but that's the first example and that's what these men were like. Example number two. Because of greed, they have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. This is a little bit more cryptic than the previous one. So Balaam, Balaam was a prophet of, um, or a prophet during the time of the Israelites in the desert. And at that point in time, the Israelites were growing and becoming very strong. So the Moabites, when they saw the Israelites, they said to them, um, yeah, we're on the right thing there, hey? Justin, remember to just keep going. <laughs> so when the Moabites saw the Israelites, they were afraid of them and they said, you know, we need to do something about this. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, went to uh, Balaam, this prophet, and said to him, okay, look, I understand that if you curse someone, they'll be cursed, and if you bless someone, they'll be blessed because you're a prophet of the Lord. And Balaam says to him, look, I can, I can only do what God puts in, I can only say what God puts in my, uh, in my mouth. I can't deviate from that. But let me go and ask God. So he goes to God and he asks him and he says, this guy has come to ask me to place a curse on the Israelites. Um, this is the story, etc. What should I do? And God says to him, have nothing to do with them. Don't curse anyone. Don't do what they say. So he goes back to Balak and he says, look, I can't, curse them, God has forbidden me from doing that, so sorry. Then Balak says, okay, look, never mind that. I'm going to give you all these riches. And he comes and he says, I'll give you all of this, all these riches and all this wealth, if you will just curse them. So please try again. 
Now Balaam, even though God told him, do not curse these people, do not go with them, do not, uh, do not curse the Israelites, do not go with Balaam, he still went back and he said, okay, let me go and ask God. And he goes and he asks God again. And God is clearly angered by this because he's going against his word. But nevertheless, God says to him, you know what, just go. Go and go with them. But then, immediately after that, we have the story of the talking donkey. Hopefully you guys know the talking donkey story. <laughs> but um, what happens is that Balaam, as he's traveling to go to Balak, he's stopped, or the, the angel of the Lord is standing in the road with a sword, ready to kill him. And Balaam doesn't even see the angel. The donkey that he's riding on sees the angel and starts deviating to the one side and to the other side. And eventually Balaam hits the donkey and is like, what, why you keep going astray? And that's when the donkey actually speaks, <laughs> finds its voice and speaks. And the donkey, the, uh, she says to him, why are you hitting me? Like, why are you striking me? Can you not see the angel of the Lord ready to kill you standing in front of you? And that's when Balaam sees the angel and, say, and repents, but nevertheless continues. <laughs> and so over the course of three different attempts, he tries to curse the, the Israelites, but every single time he does it, God just fills his mouth with uh, blessings. So all he ends up doing is blessing the Israelites. And as a consequence, Balak and Balaam say to each other, okay, well, look, this is clearly not working and you think that's the end of the story. But immediately after this, we read that the Moabite woman came into the Israelite camp and the Israelite men performed these sexual rituals with them right in the assembly of the Israelites. And as a consequence, God brought about this plague that killed 24,000 of them because he was so upset about this. And so you think, okay, well, that's a bit weird. But if you read, this is all in numbers, by the way. If you read a couple of chapters onwards, you see that Balaam was actually so greedy for that money or for those riches that he actually, even though he couldn't curse them, he found a different way to destroy the Israelites by actually, he was the one that told them to do this. He was the one that said, take the Moabite woman and allow the Israelite men to um, commit sexual immorality with them. And as a consequence, God will bring his judgment on them. So here the story is, or the moral of the story is, selling out the gospel for, for wealth or for greed. And again, how resonant is that in today's society? Another dangerous thing. And you must ask yourself as well, like a lot of us say, yeah, you know, I'll never not believe um, the scriptures. I'll never not believe in God. But if someone came to you and said, hey, here's one billion rand for you to never all you have to do is just never like, go to church again. <laughs> would that tempt you? Like, would you be like, okay, yeah, you know, I think I can do that. <laughs> it's scary. We, shouldn't, we, we must be careful about this because we might think that we're immune to these kind of things, but not always. And then example three, they will certainly perish in Korah's rebellion. Now, who's Korah? Korah was one of the Levite priests during, also during this time in the, in the wilderness or in the desert. And him and a group of his um, fellow priests, they went to Moses and Aaron and said, um, "Why we're all priests over here. We're all servants of the Lord. We all um, serve the Lord directly. We all receive revelation from him. What is so special about you two, Moses and Aaron, that you guys esteem yourselves so much? And as soon as Moses hears this, he falls on his face because he knows that Here's, here's problems. Here comes problems. Here comes God's judgment. And so he says to, the, to Korah and his party, and he, and he says to Aaron, let's 
go before the Lord, we'll stand this side, you guys stand that side, and we allow God to choose between the two of us. And then God answers Moses and says, okay, just move yourself apart from these people. <laughs> move yourself apart from these people and their family. And the reason why he said that was because he was going to bring judgment on them. And what happened was he actually opened up the earth and swallowed them and their families whole. Um, quite, quite hectic. <laughs> but again, this time the, the moral of the story is that of people um, looking at the authorities or the spiritual um, authority or let's say the, the people who have been placed in spiritual authority above them and actually saying, well, or being either jealous of it or saying, well, what's so special about you? And this is so dangerous because we can be in a church where we can say, well, why is that person the pastor? Or why is that person doing that, you know? And yeah, we put ourselves in that same kind of thing. So wanting to esteem ourselves, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Okay, verse 12. There's something on the screen there, Justin. <laughs> Just minimize. Okay, these men are dangerous reefs at your love feast, feasting without reverence, feeding only themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted, wild sea waves spewing out the foam of their shame, wayward stars for whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved. So now here we've got an, um, Jude using vivid metaphors to express what these people are like. In the first one he says that they are, they, these men are dangerous reefs. So a reef is like a blemish or a stain at your love feasts, feasting without reverence. Now a love feast is basically a celebration of the Lord's Supper. It was where the church came together for communion, for worship, and to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And doesn't this, this feasting without reverence thing, it reminds you of 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is talking about people who disgrace the Lord's Supper, people who come and they just, they're just interested in filling themselves with uh, food, as opposed to actually um, honoring the Lord's Supper. You see how dangerous that is. And he says they're waterless clouds. A waterless cloud, imagine what a waterless cloud is. It's like a cloud that's promising a whole bunch of rain or a storm, but then when you actually look inside, it's got nothing. It's got no substance and they're carried along by the winds. Now that reminds you of Jude's brother's book, James, when something is carried along by the wind, where we talk about waves being tossed to and fro by the wind. People who are unstable. They're autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted. So this just reinforces the fact of their deadness. They, without fruit, so they don't, have, they don't yield anything in the church, they twice dead, not once dead, they twice dead. <laughs> in other words, they're so dead that they're dead twice. <laughs> and they uprooted. Wild sea waves spewing out the foam of their shame. Again, similar to James. And then wayward stars for whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved. So that harkens back to that story around the angels that have been placed in chains for eternity. But also, star, so stars are like angels in the, in the Bible. Generally, stars and angels are synonymous in the Bible. But also in these days they would have used stars for navigation. So you'd be like, okay, that's south, that's north, based on the constellations that you're looking at. So a wayward star would mean you can't actually navigate correctly. It's useless for guidance. Again, a very useful metaphor for what these people were like because, again, if you looked at them as your guide, they'll lead you astray. Verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh in descent, beginning with Adam, 
even prophesied of them, saying, Look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict every person of their thoroughly ungodly deeds that they have committed and of all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So, I just want to say, like in this church, I hope that we are all believers in the fact that revelation, the events of revelation, is not some sort of metaphor for something that has already happened or, you know, it's just metaphorical, poetic language. The events of revelation are real. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus uh, is going to come back on a white horse with his two-edged sword in his mouth and he's going to come with the angels as it says here thousands and thousands of his holy ones the angels and the saints and he's going to completely wipe out the devil and it's not even going to be a battle like you can't call it a battle because God is just going to well Jesus is just going to come and wipe them out in one fell swoop so it's just you know (laughs) when God fights he doesn't have to uh, you know strain himself but anyway so the idea is that if, you, if you're one of those people who doesn't read the book of Revelation or who doesn't enjoy, you know, stays clear of that, I urge you to reconsider that and to study this book because Revelation is essentially what us or what we as Christians look forward to. It's our hope. It's our future that lies ahead of us. And there's a blessing in reading the book of Revelation. So if you're one of those people, I urge you, spend time reading it because it's our hope. It's our joy. It's something we should be Um, looking forward to every single day. I know there's other books in the Bible that maybe are more uplifting or whatever, but Revelation for me is very uplifting because if you read where we're going to, it's just just incredible. Now we read here about Enoch. So it says in verse 14, Enoch the seventh in descent. Enoch, hopefully most of us know, was one of the, well, the seventh in generation from Abraham, uh, sorry, from Adam, And he was someone who walked so closely with the Lord, it says that he never even died. God just took him straight to be with him. Now there's this book called the Book of Enoch, which is supposedly written by him. It's an apocryphal book, so it's not actually part of the Bible. But nevertheless, a lot of the stuff that we see in Jude is actually quoted in that book, like angels being being condemned for their sins, and here for the Lord coming with his thousands and thousands of holy ones. It's also supposed to be from there. But again, the point is, if we if we've got something in scripture that is quoted in another book, it doesn't mean that that book is now part of the biblical canon. But the fact that that quote is in the Bible means that the quote itself is true. Hopefully we can understand that. So, again, it doesn't really matter about these other books. We don't need to concern ourselves with them necessarily. But at the same time, anything that's in the Word, we do need to concern ourselves with. And in any case, this actually plays out in Revelation, the story of thousands and thousands of his holy ones. So we don't even need to refer to the book of Enoch. But Jude himself is quoting this as if the people who are his readers know exactly what he's talking about from the context of Enoch. Because remember, at this point, they didn't have the book of Revelation to refer to. Okay. Anyway, the, the idea behind verse 14 to 16 is that it's talking about the judgment that is coming on these people who twist the word. And again, it's a warning to us that we must be careful because God is going to come at any time and when he does, he's going to execute a terrible judgment on these people. Let's not find ourselves amongst them. Verse 16. These people are grumblers and fault finders who go wherever their desires lead them and they give bombastic speeches enchanting folks for their own gain. How often are we guilty of such things? 
grumbling and fault finding. All of us are guilty of that at some point and going wherever our desires lead them. Now this, this is the interesting because in the church that we have today, people will go to a church where they are uplifted, where the message resonates with them, where the pastor tells them about you know, grace or the pastor tells them about the, the gospel of prosperity or those type of things. So in other words, they go wherever the pastor is telling them what they want to hear. And that's why we've got to be careful because it says that they enchant folks for their own gain. Verse 17. But you, dear friends, recall the predictions foretold by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, at the end time, at the end of time, there will come scoffers propelled by their own ungodly desires. These people are divisive, worldly, and devoid of the Spirit. So, here we see Jude reminding them of the book of Peter. Jude reminding them of the books of the other apostles, saying this kind of thing that we're experiencing now was already foretold in these other books. It's not a surprise. He's validating their prophecies. And again, this quote that he says over here is straight from Peter. And he says these people are divisive. They are worldly and they're devoid of the spirit. So I just want to see here. Where is that quote? Sorry, just one second. Oh, there it is. So, they are divisive. We urge to be unified. If you read 1 Corinthians 1.10, we call to be unified. These people are called worldly. We are urged not to associate with the world. Romans 12.2. They are devoid of the Spirit. We urge to be filled with it. Ephesians 5.18. So, there's, they are the exact antithesis of what we are. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, maintain yourselves in the love of God while anticipating the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. So after all of these condemnations and these difficult things that we've read through, we now come to the close, which is quite encouraging, quite inspiring actually. We get told to be strengthened by building ourselves up in the most holy faith. How do we build ourselves up in the most holy faith? By praying in the Holy Spirit, by maintaining ourselves in the love of God and anticipating the mercy of Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. What is the mercy of Jesus Christ that brings eternal life? That's our salvation. That's where God is going to give us eternal life because of our belief in Him, because of His what He did for us on the cross, what He achieved for us. So the idea here is that we need to stay strong in these difficult times. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit. We need to stay in the love of God. And now we come to an interesting part, this verse 22. And have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on others coupled with the fear of God, hating even the clothes stained by the flesh. Now this is talking about, so yes, although we're fine, we're saved by God, we've got to be careful about how we deal with these people who are false teachers. We need to have mercy on those who waver or doubt. In other words, we're not supposed to, when someone doubts the gospel of Christ, we're not supposed to condemn them. We're not supposed to go up to them and say, you know, well, good luck, you're going to hell. <laughs> we're supposed to have mercy on them. And through our mercy, we can potentially lead them back. Like saving others by snatching them out of the fire. People who are literally going to this uh, condemnation or this judgment and we can rescue them. 
and have mercy on others coupled with a fear of God hating even the clothes stained by the flesh. Now that's interesting because it's saying that yes, in dealing with these false teachers we must be careful, we can have mercy on them and treat them well but at the same time we must be careful that we are so, we hate the sin of twisting the word of God so much that we can't even, or we're so reverent of God that we don't want to be close to someone that can potentially lead us astray. Someone who can preach a gospel that's slightly different and lead us down the wrong path. I mean this thing of hating the clothes stained by the flesh, it means literally, like think about it, like you've got the flesh is the sinful, but just the clothes touching the flesh is considered something that we should, be, that we should hate. The word hate is used in all the translations, and hate is a very strong word. So that's just an example of how we should be dealing with these, um, call them apostates. Verse 24, this is the end. Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time and now and for all eternity. Amen. Now this... This is a beautiful way to close the letter. Um, after all that we've read, we, si- we see now the verse which ironically, or the verses which ironically is the one that people generally know from Jude. <laughs> Everyone knows this one um, best. But actually if you read this, it's, it's, it's just talking about how uh, it's more of an encouragement than it is around the rest of the book. So after all that difficulty, we come to this inspiring end where we see that God is able to keep us from falling. It is only through God that we are able to stand rejoicing without blemish in His presence. So in the midst of this difficult trial, in the midst of the world that we live in where people are twisting the word and people are doing all kinds of sinful things, we serve a God who is able to keep us from falling. He's literally able to keep us to stand rejoicing. And we can be in His presence regardless of the sin that we have committed because of Jesus and his sacrifice. So we can be found without blemish in his presence. And to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority. And so even now we say, this is the God that we serve, this is our Lord, this is our owner, this is the one to whom we give all glory, all majesty, all honor, all authority, even now. And before all time it's been like this, now it's been like this, and in the future it will be like this. And that's why I pray that for us and for our generations to come, for our kids, our kids' kids, for all the generations to come from us, that we will always remember and revere the Lord, that we will always look forward to this hope that lies before us, that we will always elevate Him to the highest possible place. And that one day we will stand in the new Jerusalem alongside Him. So yeah. And that's, that's about it. And hopefully you guys enjoyed um, going through a book of the Word. You can tick one out of 66 done. <laughs> At least you've got an appreciation for one of them. And yeah, hopefully that encourages you to spend more time um, digesting the Word. Yeah, um, Lord God, we thank you for this, for this opportunity to um, read through your Word. I pray that your revelation has spoken, Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, that this book is available to us, that we can partake of it whenever we want, Lord God, and I pray that as we go from here that we continue to dive into it and unpack all the truth and all the wisdom that lies within it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.